Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. College affordability has become one of the most pressing domestic issues in the country. Higher education costs continue to spiral while the knowledge economy makes post-secondary education more and more of an imperative for anyone hoping to land in the middle class. Our guest today probably understands this issue as well as anyone in the country. Michael Dannenberg has advised every major Democratic presidential candidate over the last four election cycles on higher ed policy. He also served as a senior policy advisor to our own Senator Edward Kennedy, to Senator Claiborne Pell, and to the U.S. Undersecretary of Education. He's currently Director of Strategic Initiatives at Democrats for Education Reform in Washington. Michael Dannenberg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So this whole idea of uh, college affordability has translated into policy proposals from candidates uh, for office up and down the ladder and across the country. A lot of the buzzwords have been free college for all or debt-free college for all. Uh, you broadly think that's, that's, a, that's a good idea and a worthy goal. Is that right? I absolutely do. Um, a big problem in higher education for going on, I would say, 40 years now is that people have overestimated the cost of college and underestimated the amount of financial aid they get. They think that all colleges cost sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year that is the sticker price at uh, Boston University or Harvard all, all in. Uh, and they underestimate how much financial aid they can get. Everyone is eligible for financial aid. Bill Gates's kid can get a federal unsubsidized Stafford loan, which comes with all sorts of benefits. So one of the advantages of, um, excuse me, one of the I advantage- think I saw that they just put in their application the other day. I read that. <laughs> one of the advantages of, um, of, these, of these so-called free college movements or debt-free college movements is they kind of cut through the misinformation, uh, the misimpressions when it comes to the cost of college and the amount of available financial aid. They send a loud and clear message uh, that in the words of Barack Obama, yes, you can go to college. And uh, I think that's enormously valuable. Uh, States like Rhode Island, uh, New York, Tennessee have been very successful in uh, in conveying that message. But um, our now challenge going forward is to make sure that uh, we deliver the goods associated with that message. And those goods are not simply um, low cost for higher education. Uh, Quality is key. And so you've laid out uh, in, in a few pieces that you've written recently sort of some key pillars of, of what we ought to be looking for in, in, uh, in college affordability policies. Uh, just help, help us understand a little bit of, of, of what these uh, key principles are that should be guiding us as we're going ahead with, with trying to make this a, you know, a reality for students. Sure. If, if I um, could boil this podcast down to three words and uh, a message on college affordability to three words, it would be time to degree. For half of all students, time to degree is endless. They don't complete. For even students who do complete, the typical bachelor's degree student takes five years, over five years, to complete a four-year degree. Typical typical associate's degree student takes three years, over three years, to complete a two-year degree. And I guess the old adage, time is money, right? It applies here. Absolutely. Time is money out of pocket for the student. Time is money for the state, for the taxpayers who are subsidizing that education. Time is money for the institutions who are providing institutional financial aid. Time is money in terms of opportunity cost. Um, the amount of time lost uh, to, uh, uh, to, extend, to extended time to graduation uh, has cumulative effects um, over, over the lifetime of a, 
of a, of a student. So it seems to me one of the key things we want to do as part of any college affordability plan is promote completion and specifically on-time completion. Um, a world where you uh, are, as you said in your opener, um, we're in a world now where two out of every three jobs going forward is going to require a post-secondary degree. 16 of the 20 fastest growing occupations require post-secondary training. Uh, folks have no choice but to get post-secondary training. But what the, the economic data overwhelmingly shows is that uh, when students earn a certificate or degree is when they actually see true, change, true changes in their earnings and employment levels as opposed to some college and no degree. Mm -hmm. And um, in the sort of hierarchy of, of, of issues you've put forth, um, uh, I don't know if some people would be surprised by this or not. Uh, I think I was a little surprised at the degree to which you say uh, the academic preparation or the, or the rigor of the, of the high school program that, that students were in just looms large over this whole, this whole issue. That's talk absolutely, talk that's a, a little about that. That's absolutely correct. The research indicates that the number one indicator of college completion is high school curricular rigor. It's more influential than race, family income, parent education. Over 75% of the influence on whether or not a student will complete a post-secondary program, be it a certificate or degree program, is the quality of their high school preparation. So high school, K-12 education, plays an enormous role when it comes to success in college. One in four students who graduates from high school and immediately goes to college, one in four students will have to take a remedial class in college. Meaning that, they're, <clears throat> meaning that they're learning skills and gaining knowledge that they should have gained in high school, but instead are having to pay at the post-secondary level. Those students are 74% more likely to drop out. And here's the kicker about remedial education. People think, oh, it's, it's uh, only low-income kids or it's uh, kids, of, uh, kids of color and only kids going to community colleges. Nearly half of those students who, are in, who have to take remedial education come from middle-class families. Nearly half of them are going to four-year schools, not two-year schools. So we have a, a profound, widespread problem when it comes to K-12 academic preparation for post-secondary education, and that has tremendous impact on completion and time to degree, which has tremendous impact on college affordability. So really, so I mean, part of the, part of the solution to the college affordability uh, crisis or challenge is, is uh, better K-12 system, really, in this country? Uh, high school academic preparation is pretty critical. Um, there are other elements that are also critical when it comes to college completion, like college selection. Uh, and there, again, high schools play a large role, um, or those services that are provided to high school-age students play a large role when it comes to college selection, as does the structure of the financial aid system. Really, the K-12 system and the higher education system are mutually dependent on one another. People look at them as if they're in silos, but they're not. What happens in K-12 education plays an enormous role on higher education finance. What happens in higher education, specifically things like teacher preparation, uh, can play an enormous role when it comes to K-12 success. Um, there are a lot of places who have embraced these sort of free college programs, Kalamazoo, Michigan being one of them, uh, where the promise of a free college education has actually had a, a positive effect in terms of high school academic preparation because people think that their aspirations are higher than they otherwise were. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, you mentioned college selection. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the sort of base choices that, that, that kids make is whether they're heading to a two-year college or a four-year college. Uh, and, and, and that's an area that you've looked at uh, quite a bit and, and found something that I, I found pretty striking uh, about, about that, that decision point. Can you talk a little bit about this issue about two versus four-year schools? Sure. Community colleges can be great for um, folks who are pursuing an associate's degree um, or want some sort of short-term training. Um, they are not always the best path for someone who wants a four-year degree. There's a big problem in this country called undermatching. Basically, it's students who are capable of going to a four-year school academically, would like to go to a four-year school, but for whatever reason end up going to a two-year school. Now, for a lot of families and policymakers, that's not such a bad thing, they think, because they'll pay, they think the student will pay less at the community college, and then they can transfer to the four-year school. Uh, it has intuitive appeal. But what the research shows is that when students attempt to transfer from community college to a four-year school, they lose about 22% of their credits, thereby extending their time to degree. Not only that, uh, those students who uh, are seeking a four-year degree, having first begun at a community college, first-time, full-time students, they complete at a rate of only 14%. Only 14% go on to get a bachelor's degree. If you compare two students who are equally academically qualified, one of whom chooses to go to a community college, the other whom of whom, which chooses to go to a four-year school. All things being equal, the student who undermatches into the community college is 30 percentage points less likely to complete. Channeling students to community colleges as a way of reducing costs is not a sound strategy for promoting completion, or I would argue even affordability in the long, in the long run. It's good for some students, but it's not right for everyone. And I mean, I just found that really striking, especially because we have heard uh, here in Massachusetts, and I would guess in in a lot of other states, uh, people suggesting uh, as as part of a solution to the affordability challenge uh, that students think about going first to get a two-year degree at a lower-cost community college and then transferring. There's even uh, here been a lot of talk and focus on these uh, what they call articulation agreements uh, that would allow for that sort of smooth transition. And it, again, on paper, it looks, like a, uh, it looks like it might not be that bad of a, of a plan for some kids. Now, like I said, it has intuitive appeal. Right. Um, but we've been working on these articulation agreements for 25-odd years, at least, and we've not had a great deal of success. Um, but we do know that there are a lot of things that can be done to improve completion rates at community colleges, things that aren't necessarily high cost either. Uh, Portland Community College has doubled its completion rate. Fort Worth, Texas Community College has uh, nearly doubled its completion rate. In both cases, they're sort of doing low-cost interventions. They're not throwing huge amounts of money at students. Um, instead, what they're doing is investing in what I would call soft-touch interventions. In Fort Worth, Texas, they um, have a caseworker from Catholic Charities who's assigned to 35 students, and they connect those students with social services, uh, food aid, uh, housing aid, domestic violence help. I mean, a lot of times, for, especially for community college students, it's, it's small things that can push them off the edge 
of, of completing. You know, maybe their car breaks down, they don't have $500 for a car repair. Um, or, or, or maybe they can't uh, uh, afford transportation services to the school um, through public transportation. Like I said, Fort Worth, Texas, Portland Community College, they found that these sort of soft-touch interventions have had a, a pretty, pretty positive effect in moving the dial when it comes to community college completion. And we've seen the same with respect to four-year schools in terms of boosting completion. Um, there are things that schools can do to improve completion. They're, they're not helpless figures in this. Some of them involve uh, you know, sort of support systems or advising. I think I read uh, a piece that was getting a lot of attention a couple of years ago. I think we might have been at the University of Texas or uh, mm-hmm. at some places like that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that are, again, part of this kind of push to get kids into college that we now are saying has to really be a focus on getting them through college. Uh, means that there has to be attention to those kind of things, right? That's right. Uh, the goal should be to get students to and through college in, in a timely manner. Right. Um, I think the University of Texas piece you're referring to is in New York Times Magazine. Right. Georgia State has been one of the leaders in this. Uh, Cal State Fullerton has been a leader. Uh, there are a number of schools out there, and um, I think the one key thing that they have in common is that their leadership, the president of the university or chancellor, uh, prioritizes completion and makes it um, something that they hold others in the school accountable for, the provosts, the deans, so forth. Right now, student completion is often not a priority for most leaders in higher education, although they may say otherwise, right? The university's presidents are rewarded for for fundraising. Faculty are rewarded for publishing. Um, But you don't really hear a lot of rewards when it comes to uh, student, student growth, student achievement, completion or closing completion gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida State has a zero completion gap between white students and underrepresented minorities. Michigan State has the same SAT, same <clears throat> high school average GPA coming in, and yet it has horrible gaps. Only three in 20 Michigan students will graduate, excuse me, only three in 20 Michigan African-American male students will graduate on time. That's, that's astounding. University of Akron, LeBron James just gave $50 million to them not long ago. University of Akron, they have a 90% African-American dropout rate. There are scores of colleges in this country that have completion rates, four-year schools that have completion rates below 15%, 85% dropout rate. You may have heard- So those are almost, uh, I mean, uh, it wouldn't be too harsh to say they're really more like kind of becoming just like debt mills more than anything else at that kind of level, right? Uh, you could call them college dropout factories right. when, you, when you get that high. Um, and they're mostly generating debt in that case if they're not generating degrees right. for which, kids. Which is leaving students in sort of the worst of all circumstances. Uh, debt without degree is a nightmare for many students. Um, if you default on your student loan, that's not like your credit card. You can't discharge that in bankruptcy. It's going to follow you around. You, your credit will be affected. You'll be less likely to be able to own a home. You'll be less likely to be able to get a job because employers are checking credit reports. You'll be less likely to get married. Uh, debt without degree is devastating. And students who don't complete are four times more likely to uh, default on their student loans than those who do. And so, um, so some of these things that we're talking about to uh, – to aid with the affordability issue are, uh, as you put, put it at the beginning, this time to completion issue that, you know, you know, just having students 
complete degrees in a more timely way is going to save a, a ton of money. But right. at some point, uh, I mean, there's still going to be costs involved here, and to relieve kids of that cost or of the debt, uh, it sounds like states are are having to come up with uh, with more money, putting more money into their higher ed system. Is mm-hmm. that the case? And I mean, how uh, sort of in terms of what you think of smart public policy, how you know what states are doing that right? What uh, you know, how are they funding it? Does it involve new revenue streams that they kind of get broad public buy-in for to invest in this, or or is it a matter of, of trade-offs and having to prioritize this uh, at, at the expense of other things? Well, even with new revenue streams, their budgets and spending is always a question of priorities. Uh, and so there are a number of states that have uh, done a pretty good job. Um, Tennessee, no, no state is perfect. Tennessee is probably one of the leaders in the country, uh, but we're seeing... Rhode Island embrace uh, free community college as opposed to uh, a public college promise. We're seeing it at a lot of individual communities, Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, and we're seeing it at a lot of in individual institutions of higher education. Um, North Car- University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, for example, has a debt-free guarantee. They instituted a debt-free guarantee there, um, accompanied with uh, other support services for uh, low-income students, and uh, they saw their, their African-American completion rate double in five years. Uh, so we are seeing results um, on places that prioritize um, college affordability, especially when they accompany it with uh, additional supports. And I think the, the key ones are, from a, for a state perspective, K-12 education, specifically high school curricular rigor, Number two is uh, support when it comes to college selection, so people are making smart choices and are not the best choices for the best schools for them, uh, and they're not being steered to the places that we think are cheapest, um, but actually might not uh, serve them in in the long run. I think the third thing that's key is covering more than tuition and fees, Mm -hmm. but also covering total cost of attendance. Massachusetts... um, Tuition tuition's pretty low. Fees are extraordinarily high. Right. It's this weird sort of funhouse mirror uh, <laughs> a billing statement that you get. Right. It's so been so talked about for years, so and we've never really done anything to change it. Right. But even even more so is that um, you know room room board transportation all these other costs they out they are larger than tuition and fees. And uh, if you have a college affordability plan that's only directed at tuition and fees, you're going to be leaving families uh, in a lot a lot of circumstances to pay for more than half their education, which is fine if they've got the means, but if they don't have the means, then what's going to happen is the students are going to borrow more, they're going to drop to part-time status, they're going to work heavy hours. Uh, if, you drop to, if you go to part-time status exclusively, you are five times less likely to complete a four-year degree than if you are exclusively full-time. If you work, if you work 15 to 20 hours, that's actually pretty good for your uh, for your academic prospects. Students who work take their studies more seriously. They manage their time better. But there's a tipping point. Once you get over 20 hours a week, that affects your studies and dramatically, and completion rates fall off. So when we only focus on tuition and fees and leave students holding the bag, um, uh, we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for a situation where a lot of students could end up in worse financial shape um, because they end up with debt and no degree uh, than, than, than had it not gotten in the first place. Don't get me wrong, 
debt-free college is a great idea. Uh, I'm all for these plans, that college promise plans that try and promote college access and college going. But uh, my argument is that uh, we need to do it right uh, in order to help the most people possible. Right. And I, I mean, I was fascinated by this, uh, uh, f- the, the fact at, at the University of North Carolina that the debt-free program has, has really increased completion rates. Because um, I think here there's been some concern. We've had proposals at different times for variations on this. One of the uh, candidates for governor actually, uh, who actually dropped out of the race uh, just the other day, Seti Warren, the former mayor of Newton, had a free public college plan as part of his agenda. Um, former Governor Deval Patrick had at one point proposed free community college. And I think there was a concern, uh, you know, that I think maybe wasn't totally misplaced by some folks that um, the focus was so much on providing the access and covering the costs of it that we might, given that we see such a high percentage of, of students entering community college unprepared, that we would just encourage even more kids who maybe hadn't even considered entering a community college with a free tuition plan uh, to enter. And so, um, I mean, but you're suggesting if done right, uh, because of because you relieve kids of some of these uh, uh, the kind of uh, trip wires that get them related to debt, that it actually can increase uh, out. You know, you get better outcomes. I think that's right. I mean, remember University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, pretty selective institution. Exactly. That's so true. the students who are going there are coming uh, out of high school academically well prepared. So it's not the same as maybe a free community college program. Exactly. Debt-free there, they're not going to be going part-time at all. They're going full-time. Right. Uh, They're getting, as I said, the Carolina Covenant included additional student supports um, to help students get through. So everything from uh, guaranteed course availability to things like emergency financial aid um, uh, to, uh, to, to academic counseling. Um, all of these things had had a positive impact. Mm-hmm. The places we we have danger is when it's frankly when you try and do quote unquote free community free free college on the cheap. Right. Um, and uh, uh, while it's a good first step, um, I think it's pretty important that we uh, uh, drill down uh, on the policy in places that might not be as sexy like um, college counseling. Um, and uh, high school curricular rigor um, to, uh, to ensure that we get um, positive results in terms of on-time completion. And so, uh, I mean, here in Boston, for example, there has been an effort just recently launched by the city and under Mayor Walsh uh, to uh, bridge some of the, of the, of the costs that uh, will face Boston students heading off into community college to sort of make up the gap between what they might get through Pell Grants or other other kind of aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, does that f- is that the kind of thing that we should be sort of cautiously encouraging of, but we need to sort of have some guardrails up or there should be some things that we should be looking out for in a program like that? Well, I think the big benefit of programs like this is they send this loud and clear message to students that, yes, you can go to college. Um, but I think you want to be sure to not be <clears throat> channeling students to community colleges versus four-year schools. I think you want to be sure to be upgrading the quality of your high school academic curriculum. 
think you want to be sure to ensure that the institutions of higher education in which you're sending these students uh, have support services for those who need them. Uh, and I think you want to also, frankly, hold institutions accountable for their performance. You know, when a kid is 18, uh, 17, we, we, and they're a senior in high school, we think that the institution, the high school, has uh, power over that student, whether or not they're going to graduate, responsibility. Student goes, a year later, a student goes to post-secondary education, uh, the difference between 12th grade and 13th grade, or 18 and 19, we suddenly think that the institution has no power and it's all on the student. And that's just not true. Inst what institutions do make an makes an enormous difference. And institutions that prioritize completion, prioritize on-time completion, are showing results. And those results are not only good for students, they're good for taxpayers because uh, they lead to um, a quicker completion and, uh, and larger economic development, mm -hmm. greater economic development. And just talk maybe briefly just as we get toward wrapping up about some of the, the sort of Massachusetts picture more broadly in terms of, of these. And I know you've, you've looked at, uh, again, this question of our achievement gaps here and, and where uh, students are heading, uh, whether it's to two- or four-year schools and what the implications are from that. Can you just talk a little about that? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a mix of good news and bad news. Um, Massachusetts overall has uh, higher levels of student performance than most states. Uh, and that certainly holds for high school students as well. Um, however, it also has larger gaps between white students and underrepresented minorities uh, than most states. Um, now, in part, that's a function of white students doing particularly well. Um, but nevertheless, there are these big gaps. Uh, a second issue with respect to um, these sort of five benchmarks I've tried to lay out, or several benchmarks I've tried to lay out for uh, any kind of college affordability plan, is that students of color are much more likely to go to two-year schools than four-year schools in Massachusetts as compared to other states. Compared to their peers in other states. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, and then on top of that, there are a number of institutions that do a great job in Massachusetts, and a number that I shall not name, <laughs> mm -hmm. that um, do not do a very good job when it comes to completion. Um, but if you go to college results online, collegeresults.org, you can type in the name of any four-year college in the country, find out its completion rate. There's a tab that says similar colleges, and you can see how that college compares to similar colleges, similar students, similar academic uh, uh, admission standards, and sometimes very, very dissimilar results. And just lastly, I mean, when I think about it, um uh, people say our system of of, of higher ed and uh, financing it or or access to it, you know, differs from a lot of uh, other advanced countries where where that access is broader, where the costs are lower, or in some cases free. Do you think, uh, in in the sort of overall arc of things, uh, and we keep hearing about the spiraling cost, are we? I mean, do you have some optimism that we're getting a handle on this from? Uh, if not the, the continued rising costs, but, but in terms of figuring out ways to uh, uh, fashion policies so that, so that kids can, can get through uh, you know, debt-free or, 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 or with less debt and, and, and go on without all of these, uh, uh, the pitfalls that, 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 you know, that you've talked about so, uh, so clearly? Well, that's a multi-layered question. Um, 
I'm not sure we're learning much from uh, other countries uh, and their higher education system. There are things we are doing. I don't know if we maybe if there are things we should be learning from them, but are right. we? There are things are we, we are doing that rep- that. Um, are we digging out of the hole, or is it getting a little deeper and the more grim? Getting, the hole's getting deeper. Okay. Um, there are things we're doing that are good that reflect those uh, practices in other countries, um, namely largely kicking out the private student loan banks like Sally May from the federal student loan system has saved tens of billions of dollars, uh, and those funds have um, moved into making college more accessible, more affordable in the form of uh, student loan forgiveness. Um, that's not dissimilar from Australia's system. But by and large, uh, I'm not optimistic Mm -hmm. um, because we have seen a pretty consistent state disinvestment from higher education over time. It gets worse with each recession. Um, That's been a complaint, uh, just not to cut you off, in Massachusetts when we look at the share of our public system that's, that's getting funded by the state. It's just been dropping, you know, continually. That's right. And, um, and then when the economy picks up, there's usually some recovery um, in terms of state funding for higher education, but never gets back to the level it was before the recession. So what you're seeing is institutions, public institutions, which educate over 75% of all students. Okay? Nationally, 75% of all students right. are going to community colleges or public state colleges, state universities. Even in Massachusetts. Right, something we forget with the huge uh, number of private schools here. Even in Massachusetts, the majority of students are going to public colleges and universities. Um, What's happening is states pull back the institutions and their funding of institutions. The institutions then backfill that loss in the form of higher tuition. Um, Students and families uh, know they have to go to college in order to get a good job. They're desperate to do so, and they borrow whatever it takes to do so. So what we're seeing is state disinvestment leading to higher tuition and fees at public universities uh, combined with flat median family income leading to greater debt. And it's, uh, it's, it's having a, a market impact on our politics. We're, not, not to mention our society, we're running a giant social experiment where we are financing higher education increasingly on the backs of individuals as opposed to the public. At the same time, the costs of higher education by the universities continue to grow. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. I mean, Oof. we sort of are ending on a bit of a grim Oof. grim note, but I guess you could say, uh, you know, we're not sugarcoating things, and that it leaves, uh, uh, you know, sort of think of it as a call to action or uh, uh, to uh, uh, for us to push harder on, on the issue. Uh, I mean, feel free to chime in with some... Uh, with a, with a hopeful note, but I think that that uh, you know you've la- you've laid out the kind of a, the the to be done agenda. Well, I, I'm hopeful in that uh, the sort of so-called free college movement, if done right, can change the incentive structure mm-hmm. around state governments when it comes to funding higher education, and can serve the uh, clarion call for students and families to better prepare for college and to go. Um, that combination, in addition to uh, institution commitment to uh, to completion and, frankly, accountability for it uh, can really move the dial. All right, great. Well, uh, Michael Dannenberg from Democrats for Education Reform, I want to thank you for talking to us today. It's been great. Thank you. And you've been listening to another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Listen to us every week here. Subscribe via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.